can only mean one of two things. There are either are no issues or my followers hate me and my fragile ego and self-esteem prevents me from be believing it's the latter. Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest in time poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And Elliot Morgan. Hello. And we're going to explore the first year and potentially the second year of the early career framework. But first, Chris, what you reading for? What are you reading for? This week, I had the opportunity to look back across a load of papers relating to fluency because someone got in touch um, via a direct message asking me about some of the research into it. And um, it gave me a chance to read back a paper by uh, Ardoin or Ardoin, I'm not sure, I think it's Ardoin et al from 2016 called Repeated versus Wide Reading a randomized control design study examining the impact of fluency inter interventions on underlying reading behavior. And um, yeah, it sounds a bit niche, but actually let me spell out the importance of this study. What it does is it um, accepts that there's a decent amount of research that repeated reading helps to support the development of reading fluency and then kind of questions whether, well, how, how does this compare to other interventions? Because often, um, Fluency interventions are compared to business as usual. And so it says, let's compare this to just doing lots of reading, ideally in a one-to-one -one setting. Is it particularly beneficial to do repeated reading compared to just doing lots of reading with a pupil? And they find or seem to find from the, the um, analysis of various studies that actually just doing lots of reading is as valuable as uh, repeated oral reading for the development of fluency. So very quickly, the question then becomes, well, why do repeated reading? And the, um, the answer to that relates to how this actually works in practice. If you're reading one-to-one -one with a child, you can give lots of feedback, you can give lots of monitored reading, and you can just do wide reading. Um, but if you've got a group or a larger group of children, if you want to do monitored reading and give feedback, which seems to be the active ingredient in this stuff, then you probably need to do something that involves repetition. And also repeated reading allows you to focus on things like prosody. So lots to dig into there. And I love it because it reminds us of the nuances required in um, thinking about how stuff works in the classroom. It isn't as simple as research says you do this. It's okay, based on the balance of what we read, what works when and what works in what situations. So yeah, big fan of this paper. Um, and uh, I'd highly recommend it. I recommend you check it out alongside Padeliadu and Giazitzidu's 2021 paper on fluency as well as a kind of counterbalance. Uh, what about you, Elliot? What are you reading for? So I've just sort of been dipping into a book called Understanding by Design, which is by um, Grant Wiggins and Jay McTie, who I've, I think I've mentioned before, and I think Lloyd may have even mentioned on the previous episode. There's some really useful stuff about like sort of curriculum design and, and unit planning uh, based on like backwards design and what they call the twin sins of curriculum design. Um, yeah, some very useful but simple, simple ideas laid out in the book. What about you, Kieran? What are you reading for? Yeah, Lloyd mentioned that last week he, when he was shouting at your your awesome blog series that you've 
started putting together. So mine came via Christian Bocco. Um, it was a tweet he sent out and the paper is called When Do Expert Decision Makers Trust Their Intuition? And essentially it's a series of sort of tests that explore something called take the first, you know, essentially how effective are sort of experts at making the right decision first time. And actually, you know, I, I won't spoil the paper, but it's very interesting. It's, it's, it's almost, you know, it, it's a chess study, but a really interesting one at that. So it is, uh, yeah, I think anyone should check it out and it's really accessible too. So this week, we're going to explore the early career framework. So obviously it was introduced last, about this time last year. Well, schools were expected sort of to be gearing up for it this time last year. I think it's worth reflecting on how successful our efforts have been, how things have gone, and then maybe what we can sort of do as we move into the, the new academic year. And obviously, Chris, you're maybe one step further removed from this because of spending less time in the classroom, not, not for the entirety of the year, but even when you were, um, this wasn't necessarily your area of uh, responsibility. So I'm going to almost hand over to you now, um, and then uh, me and Ali can sort of speak from our position of relative experience, I think. Lovely stuff. So yeah, let's let's dive into it. So as you say, the ECF has been in place for an academic year. Um, from your direct experience of, of it, as well as things that you've heard from colleagues, what seems to have gone well with it, do you think? Well, just for context, sort of my involvement with the ECF this year. So I mentored an ECT. I was also the induction tutor for four ECTs at our school. Um, and I was also a um, facilitator for one of the providers. Very late, in, late on in the year, the provider I was working for had an Ofsted. And I was interviewed for two sessions in that as both a mentor and a facilitator. So I feel like I got quite significant involvement with um, the ECF this year. In terms of like what's gone well, um, rather than just focusing anecdotally, I went to look at the um, survey that the government conducted in December and January because um, it had about 18,000 respondents. So that that can be um, far more significant in telling us what are the strengths and weaknesses than sort of anecdotal evidence. And the ECTs were asked in that survey, what was the single most important aspect that they hoped to gain from, from the programme? And the sort of overwhelming or most reported response was that they wanted to receive constructive and non-judgmental guidance and support. Now, the survey indicates that that has been achieved because 96% uh, of the ECT surveyed said that they, were, uh, they rated their mentoring relationship as really good um, and that they felt really supported by their mentors. Um, and interestingly, in that survey, ECTs were rating the support from their mentors higher than the mentors were rating their own abilities. So this implies that the mentors are being much more effective than they think they are, which is perhaps to do with um, a workload issue, which we'll talk about um, further on, I imagine. Um, the majority of respondents said that they liked the quality and the content of, of the training and of the resources. ECTs, mentors, and induction tutors all said that the communication from the uh, delivery providers was good, that the information provided was clear, um, and that prov the providers were very responsive to queries. Um, and that's certainly true to my experience as an induction tutor. And they found that uh, the majority of induction tutors reported that they were very knowledgeable about the content. And I think this is a, a true strength for the ECF because it allows the um, delivery of the ECF in schools to be much more effective. But also it allows schools to structure their support outside of the program uh, to be more effective as well. Most 
induction tutors said that they thought it was either on par or better than what came previously. I certainly second that. I think it's far better than, than what came previously. The survey also showed that engagement is very high, especially in primary schools, and that most induction tutors and mentors said that they felt satisfied with the provider programme. Sort of more on an anecdotal, uh, anecdotal and personal level, the way the training has been structured is far more comprehensive than what came before. You've got self-directed study, you've got extensive reading, you've got conferences that were via Zoom initially because of COVID and now in person. I think that far exceeds the provision that came before. Um, it's very similar to the new NPQs, much better than the old, uh, old NPQs as well. A real strength also, I think, is that we now have like a year of a workforce, um, this workforce cohort that has the same sort of codified knowledge, which is rooted in the best of educational research, um, which I think is paramount when you've got teachers coming from a variety of pathways. Having worked with many ECTs and NQTs over the years that have come from like PGCE, School Direct, um, and like assessment only ones and stuff, there is a significant variance in the teacher quality of those coming into profession, not through any fault of their own, just because in the wide variety of pathways they can take. And I think the ECF now ties in better with uh, ITT and it revisits important content more regularly, which is a huge strength. And then lastly, sort of perhaps a potential future strength is that we've now doubled the length of induction. So next year ECTs will have their second year of induction where they still get 5% uh, out of class. This will not only increase their chance of staying in the profession, but it's going to increase how well prepared they are to handle the job. Look at you more as coming in with your actual evidence, whereas I've only come furnished with anecdotal evidence and the sort of, you know, my experience with our early career teachers, my comparisons with previous years, and my wife has been a, a mentor for one or two. And um, so obviously we've been talking about that in the QR every day for the last uh, 190 days or whatever it has been. And, you know, if I think about when I support the sort of our beginning teachers, quite often in the past, I will have had to do a lot of the legwork in terms of the, you know, the, the foundations of cognitive science, the sort of the principles upon which effective or what we believe is effective teaching and learning is built on before I can get to, for instance, the content in Thinking Deeply about Primary Mathematics, which I hope all our teachers after maybe three or four years are quite proficient in the, in the areas I mentioned in the, in the book. It's my blueprint. And I find this year, I've had to do a lot less of that, you know, that, um, you know, the, the, the grind work because the meetings between the mentees and the mentors, whatever sort of additional courses are in, are in place for them, they understand a lot of the content that I hope they will. You know, so you're talking about codification. I can talk to them about sort of various principles and they will have some sort of, you know, even if it's not completely fleshed out, you know, something to, to build on. So I find it from my perspective, really sort of, it helps me hit the ground running when I'm working with someone, you know, so maybe, a, a, you know, a, the examples I'm thinking of have been from maybe February onwards after they've done that first big 14 weeks and um, maybe even longer than that. Um, and then I'm, maybe I'm in there between in terms three, four, five and six. And certainly we could do a lot more math specific pedagogy um, and a lot more on the, what makes quality teaching and learning um, because I think a lot of the groundwork was in place, you know, and I'm not saying it's, uh, you know, that there were being any stretch of the imagination finished product, but I felt our starting point was, was better, you know, where, where things went well, I think. Um, 
you know, I think, yeah, so I mean, it seems to be like the teachers I've seen go through the program this year are certainly much more effective teachers than I was at the end of my first year. But like I said, this is just me observing things, comparing it with previous years and comparing it with myself. You know, it took me maybe six, seven years before I was reading about cognitive psychology and things out there. So, yeah, but, uh, I think it's been uh, words gone well. It's been a really positive experience. For two things there, like I, yeah, I agree. I'm also I'm incredibly jealous of the provision that teachers have coming through now. I, I really wish I had that, and and I think it would have set me off on a different path, or accelerated sort of becoming more towards an expert teacher, um, rather than slogging away for years and years and years. But what's interesting there is you said um, that you found it much easier to work with these ECTs because they've got all this groundwork already, and in the 25 ECTs I had in my group. When we were doing sessions on memory and, and things like this, they were like, oh, we've already done this before. We already know this. We did it in our ITT. And, and it, it was like a bit of a difficult conversation to sort of explain to them like, yeah, but you've got to revisit this stuff. It's so paramount to good teaching. You have to revisit it and trying to explain that, look, I've been reading around memory and, and space practice and all these things for a few years. And I still feel like I'm learning about it all the time. And I think that um, has come up in a few like surveys and comments on Twitter online that a lot of ECTs feel like they're just revisiting the same old content and it's making it boring for them but we really need to stress how important that content is and how why it needs to be revisited so a lot of positives there one thing too um that I, I wonder from my relative lack of experience with this is to what extent would you say that the current way of doing things is um potentially more supportive of mentors who perhaps have fallen into the role or been pushed into the role or just for whatever reason, either less enthusiastic or less equipped to do the role. And there are bound to be some. Do you think that the current way of doing things is likely to be more supportive or, or less supportive? My wife at the start of the year was given a choice about what CPD which she would like this year. And one of them was an 18 month apprenticeship in instructional coaching. And I don't think the school would have had such great progress with the ECF had she not also been studying that at the same time, you know, because um, she's really found her passion. She thinks, okay, I really enjoy coaching people. You know, it's fantastic seeing people grow and, and she sort of rekindled her, her love of reading about um, education and things. I think where that's absent, then perhaps the system needs to um, address that, you know, because I think I've definitely, you know, again, anecdotal, I've heard about some of the supporting courses being one lesson ahead of the students, so to speak, where the person delivering the course has is maybe just read the material the week before and then they're delivering the material because a lot of it is standardized and, and sort of centralized. So I think substantial professional development. And it is possible because she's doing maybe a half day every half term and then a lot of independent study and they have modules and things like that there. Um, and it's far from perfect, but she's really enjoyed it. And she she feels that she's a, a much better coach. And I've seen her in action. Um, and, you know, they have like observations where someone will watch them coach and give them feedback and things. I think where, where that's in place, you know, then the system is supportive. But where it's not, you know, you, you can't just become, I'm sure this has been said in the podcast with lots of different guests, you, you can't just become a, an expert coach overnight, you know, having read some uh, supplementary materials. For me, the main difference, I mean, you two will be able to comment on this perhaps, um, but when I mentored under the previous framework, 
I didn't receive any training whatsoever. It was very much just, we've got this NQT, can you go and mentor them? Um, so the, the stock difference I think now is that mentors are receiving training, which I think they, they spend maybe roughly an hour a week, I think is it, on self-directed study. And then obviously they have the sort of formal and informal meetings with their ECTs. But that training is the significant difference in how mentors are supported. And I think it then obviously filters down into how well ECTs are supported. I mean, yeah, I feel unfair then in my comment about how some I've heard about people being one step ahead of their students, but, you know, because there was no training in the past, was there? It was just, you know, you've been teaching slightly longer than some of these people. You could be an NQT mentor, you know, off you go and see what happens, you know. So, yeah, I, I take your point on that one. Actually, to be fair, I'm glad there's some training, you know, but I always have the, the highest expectations for what's available for us as, uh, as teachers, don't I? <laughs> I think it's sort of like, well, especially for those of us who, who use Twitter, it sort of coincided with this real um, push of instructional coaching as well. Um, so where, where we were already like familiar with reading around that, a lot of the providers, if not all of them, I think are following a sort of an instructional coaching model. So it ties in quite well with that. So one of the things that I'm, uh, one of the reasons why I asked the question about um, kind of more supportive is something my, that my partner said, where she, she's been a, a mentor uh, this year of a, a secondary maths teacher and she said of the resources she'd received she was she was a fan of the fact that it seemed to link up to what she'd read about with regards to cognitive psychology cognitive science that you've talked about but she also said at the end of it it's not going to make if you've got a terrible mentor it's not going to make them good and if you've got a brilliant mentor it's not going to make them that much better but there does seem to be from the discussions I've had that there's quite a lot of marginal gains in there. There's the potential for making, for, you know, putting a certain baseline in to support those that are really struggling to be a mentor and to maybe just tweak and give a little bit of support um, to those who are already an experienced, dedicated, excellent uh, mentor. Talked a bit about the positives there. I guess that naturally brings us on to the things that have not gone quite so well. So I actually put this question to my followers on Twitter and received no responses, which can only mean one of two things. There either are no issues or my followers hate me and my fragile ego and self-esteem prevents me from be believing it's the latter. So uh, no, um, the, the ones that I see most commonly cited that uh, I've seen online, but also having from spoken to ECTs and going to like that Ofsted um, meeting I mentioned earlier, the two that kept coming, oh, actually, no, there were three, I think, that, that I've seen a lot. So workload, the uh, amount of time needed, and the inflexibility. So in terms of like workload, it seems like a lot of people are citing the heavy workload as, as the reason that they really don't like the ECF. So it's not necessarily the content of the ECF um, that they disagree with, just how much workload it creates for mentors and for ECTs. And, and yeah, this sort of being the main reason for their overall, overall dissatisfaction with the ECF. In terms of the time commitment, from what I hear, it seems to be more about the time commitment for mentors rather than ECTs. Obviously the workload for ECTs is high. Um, the difficult thing around the workload for ECTs is that they're obviously new to the profession and they have no benchmark of what the workload in teaching is like, and it's obviously incredibly high. Um, so yeah, a bit more difficult to sort pick at that um i think the the mentors there's saying that they're either spending too much time on training 
but also that they're not necessarily getting the time from their head teachers, even though it's meant to be a statutory thing. And then the, the last one was a sort of perceived lack of flex flexibility. So a lot of commented on saying that like the content's not tailored to their setting. I had a um, early years teacher in my in my group and it wasn't really tailored towards her. But then when we fed that back to the provider, they were very responsive and started filtering that into future sessions. Um, some have said that it's just not really tailored to ECT needs generally, that they think the, the mentoring training is perhaps a bit poor and doesn't take into um, account that some are very knowledgeable about mentoring. Some have said that they found that the dates and times were inflexible. But as a facilitator, I found that sort of presenting the material at first, we had to be very rigid and it's almost like scripted. But they did encourage us after a while to sort of just use your own professional knowledge and and add that to it um, and I know that the schools minister said that they were going to give more flexibility going forward so looking at how they can perhaps provide more opportunity for mentors to do the training in the summer before the, the next year where they're going to mentor um, and then they were going to look at also the autumn term provision for ECTs because I think like the first session is a couple of weeks in and discussing let maybe giving them just a month in school before they have to do any sort of external stuff. We, I think we have to accept that last year, as much as we wanted it to be, wasn't still wasn't a typical year. And I know that schools find cover very, very difficult. You know, I think you perhaps it appears you had different degrees to which schools were prepared to engage with it. And, you know, in September last year, it felt as if some schools were going to one of those, you know, I'm not not necessarily schools in my area, but, you know, People have spoken to me from all around the country and they said, you know, like it, it seemed as if, you know, this was happening, but it's not going to happen to us. It's OK. It's fine. And, they, and sort of kicking the can down the road and, and maybe the can get kicked down the road for the for the most of the year. But I do think that there was a lot of absence, particularly around January, I think it was, you know, January, maybe term three in general, where I think covering schools was fairly difficult you know, even if we hadn't had the additional requirements that the, the early career framework sort of expects. So I think, yeah, that's one of the things that, you know, hope we won't have next year. But I do think the thing that didn't go well was the, the national preparedness, you know, and I don't know if that's unfair, but I'm just taking on all these sources of information, looking at, like you say, people commenting on, on what they plan to do and things. And even just, you know, speaking to colleagues, it, yeah, it seemed like there were varying degrees to with which it was engaged. And I think that has an impact on how things go. The the varying levels of engagement is exactly what um, I noticed as well from speaking to others and reading stuff online. And I, I don't say this as a criticism, but rather as sort of like the harsh reality as I see it, in that I, I think a lot of schools simply just weren't prepared enough for it. And so like last year, I think it was around June, Stuart Locke, who was involved in the creation of the ECF, wrote in, I think it was a blog, saying that there was sort of significant variance in how seriously schools were taking uh, upon this opportunity of the ECF. When I spoke to a head of a teaching hub, they said the same. When I spoke to an ITT provider, they said the same. Um, and then the ECTs that in my group, they all said they had sort of varying levels of support. And from that survey that I quoted earlier, and we're just going to quote a little bit now. It said that lead providers felt some schools did not fully understand the statutory entitlement of ECF-based induction programmes. And so we're not giving participants, particularly mentors, sufficient support or allocating the appropriate time for them to engage with the training programme. 
lead providers felt DfE could help raise awareness and clarify messages around the statutory requirements. It's sort of a bit of both there, isn't it? That, that talks about how perhaps the government didn't uh, raise awareness enough, but also that some schools just didn't engage with what was put out there, and that's led to mentors and ECTs feeling under-supported. And I think obviously a big bit about that is about sort of timetables and sorting cover, but that is an implementation issue, isn't it? It's, it's not the fault of the ECF itself. And I feel that if schools had been more suitably prepared, perhaps it wouldn't have been an issue at all because ECT still have the same 10% reduced timetable as the NQTs had before them. So why weren't schools ready for this? Is it that we didn't engage with it or is it that the government didn't um, communicate this enough? And another um, sort of weakness of the ECF or, or sort of pitfall, I don't know if you saw this, but I think it might have been like an NAHT survey. It was saying that 46% or something like that, around half of head teachers surveyed said they'd be less likely to take on ECTs now. Um, I think that's quite worrying and something that needs to be addressed. And if that's because of uh, trying to allocate time to cover them or funding, then that needs to be addressed very quickly. I know that um, some sort of lauded the regional autonomy that you had under the previous framework, but that didn't lend itself to sort of easy scrutiny or monitoring. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why we've moved towards this sort of one size fits all approach, especially effective for this current cohort, which had a COVID interrupted um, teacher training. A lot of the um, ECTs in my group either had no placements or very, very short placements because of COVID. So having this one size fits all codified bank of knowledge has been particularly effective, I think. From speaking to Lloyd, you know, I think his school is another example of a school that have managed this particularly well. And he was very, you know, as he is with most, most things, you've got to plan this out in advance. You've got to, you know, ring fence the time. Because obviously as part of his role as deputy head, he's the operational sort of senior leader in the school. So he's got his sort of map of where everyone should be at all times. And he's making it a priority, you know, in, in, in August last year, this time last year, he's saying, OK, who needs to be where? And that almost becomes the first thing you do when you look at how the school's going to run, because obviously your more experienced teachers, I think, can be more flexible. You know, if someone said to me, oh, Kieran, I can't give you PPA this week, but I'll give you double PPA next week. That'd be fine because I've taught these lessons many, many, many times. Then that's, you know, that's no problem at all. But for our least experienced teachers, I do. I think they need that one so they can be coached and so they can sort of explore their their practice, but also because things just take longer, don't they? You know, so I, I know that where this has gone well, the the willingness of the operational person and I'm thinking about the operational deputy heads in my own schools and how willing they were to absolutely bust a gut to make sure the time was available. You know, I could see them perspiring some days because the, the sort of the school calendar just was at it was at its limit but they made it work and like you said by doing deals with the more senior teachers with assistant head teachers that kind of thing you know because with experience comes the capacity to be flexible i think you know so i know that that's one thing he'll be shouting at the at his phone or whatever he listens on as he as he as he listens to this one is that, that you know having a plan and being prepared to to ring fence that time i think goes a long way you know and maybe the demands are unreasonable but we you know we have, we at some extent have to work within the the system as it is as it stands 
that all makes total sense. I guess just something perhaps to add on to that and that is strongly implied what both of you have said, but just to perhaps make explicit it, uh, even further, it was both in the preparation for the ECF and, as you say, last year in terms of absences, an incredibly difficult time to be implementing something new, even something, even if we were to say something significantly better, something significantly better organised, just new is it was it was not the ideal time for new for for any school and I'm, uh, i think i'm probably not speaking for too many but perhaps i am when i say i think a lot of school leaders were close to buckling under the strain of trying to make sure that you know mentors were freed up and ects were getting time etc i think it's that it was more the the time required for mentors because schools were even if they hadn't really wrapped their head around the ecf they were ready for the fact that they were going to need to give a certain amount of time for their ECTs. I think what they were less ready for was the commitments required for the mentors, etc. But yeah, there's bound to be a spectrum of schools that have coped with this really well. And at the other end, schools that have coped not so much. And in some cases, there's going to be culpability involved in in some cases, it's just going to be pure circumstances that have made it not as ideal as it could have been. So that leads us quite nicely into the next question, which is, what could the government have done better to alleviate the teething problems faced by schools trying to implement the expectations of the ECF? Yeah, like you say, Chris, and in fact, it feeds directly into what you were just saying. Why did it have to be last year? Why did it have to be done yesterday? Why couldn't we have had schools with time to explore what was expected? To have time to get familiarize themselves with the materials you know to train a cohort of mentors and then do things you know the way ofsted would inspect expect a school to do things you know with prudence that's the big message on the on the mpqs be prudent why is it on a governmental level we weren't prudent because just you know any mess that has been created i think stems from the fact that we it was we were told about it at one point and in another point very very shortly after that we were expected to be implemented and i think they could have done better by being more strategic and behaving the way successful schools do and taking the time to map out the journey you know i think the same thing can be said in the multiplication check i know we had three or four practices or maybe two or three practices during covid but i know that a lot of schools weren't prepared for the multiplication check this year because they had a million other things on their minds you know and i i expect the national score to make a big jump you know not that there is a national benchmark or anything but you know the number of people scoring 25 i think will take a big jump next year when schools have had the experience of it so you know i think that it stems from not being um, strategic i think that has caused most of the issues if not you know, the vast majority of them. I think there's an extent to which that is, I don't want to say inevitable, but difficult to avoid because of the politics of it. You know, if you are a schools minister or an education secretary, you want something done and you want it ideally up and running and something that you can say, I've done before you're transferred to another department. And, uh, you know, that's that's always going to be the case and is probably even more the case if we think about what's happened politically in recent times. But yeah, it does strike me as less than ideal, certainly. I mean, I don't want to make this the daily politics show, but we went through that white paper and I've seen some publications since the white paper about how they've been meeting, you know, some of the things they said. 
and those things don't really exist they're like those 400 hospitals that were meant to be built or whatever um you know over the, the this most recent couple of conservative governments they haven't happened so why not do this properly you know um you know like i said i don't have i don't have a horse in the political race in the united kingdom i just get on with my job you know but it, I, I don't see i don't think the sale argument has holding water because most of the things that are being pushed as successes don't really exist you know like the 90 million hours of tuition you know there were three new forms or ways of counting those hours of tuition over the course of um of term five and six you know it ended up with a weekly survey on the number of hours you know anything to get those hours up didn't matter how good those hours was you know i am veering off host i'm, I'm soapboxing and elliot said he wouldn't and so i should probably stop but yeah i, I for me it, it could have been it, it could our the teething problems could have been alleviated by being sensible rather than being political about this i think yeah j just to add to that a couple of things for me stand out principally funding the fact that um, funding wasn't earmarked for it and head teachers had to find it from a separate grant which I believe is allocated based on sort of like pupil numbers and characteristics rather than the amount of ECTs you have and um, so that that obviously potentially penalized some schools despite the fact that they had to meet the same requirements for their ECTs um, as other schools that may have less ECTs or, or, or more ECTs um, and, and uh, as I understand it the year two funding doesn't arrive till the end of year two so potentially you could have the same issues there again so they could have given the money at the start of the year. And sort of second to that, they, they should have just prepared schools better. It shouldn't have been like up to schools to figure out this stuff for themselves. It should have been like mandatory, I don't know, conference or email or however they choose to disseminate the information. But it, it should have been every school understanding uh, the conditions in which they had to prepare for, for ECTs. Because it's, it's quite worrying for her teachers to say that they perhaps don't want to take on ECTs anymore or would think second uh, think twice about it and and sort of lastly I guess continually surveying schools and ECTs and mentors and so throughout the year I know I referenced that one in from December and January but I, I don't know when the next one is or how many they're doing that would certainly be wise to alleviate any sort of problems going forward. I think it's impossible to separate all this from one key word you said there which is funding if we think about the pressures that are going to be on schools in the next academic year relating to heating bills, relating to um, having to find uh, the money for uh, pay rises um, without extra, yeah, well, without matching extra school funding, that's going to be an incredibly challenging thing to do. And obviously, if you're already struggling to think about, well, how am I, how am I actually balancing this? How am I paying for the teachers or the HLTA or whatever it is in a primary school to, to cover the, uh, for my, uh, mentors, et cetera, then yeah, it just becomes an incredibly even, it becomes even more challenging than it already is. So it's tempting to say, let's look at, let's look at this outside of the kind of political side of things, but it's almost impossible to do as soon as you get into a discussion of funding, which is inseparable from, um, these kind of things. Funny, funny you say that, Chris. Today, a letter came through from one of the trade unions, and it was talking about the pay rise and how all of this is unacceptable. But at the same time, you understand that that energy bills are going to triple next year, and if we don't have this funding come from sort of central government, we're trying to find three times as much for the electricity and the heat. 
you know, I don't really care how much I get paid. I'd much prefer the school was open and the kids had somewhere safe to go for, what, 40 odd hours a week, you know, and maybe that's overly altruistic. I know we warn people about doing that kind of thing, but it it's such an intense time, you know, that as Elliot was talking about funding, I was thinking, it's great, you know, I, I, I don't think I've experienced anything like this, you know, always, funding's always an issue, but right now it seems really, really acute and really, really intense. Moving away a little bit from the political stuff and thinking to the future, perhaps with a you know slightly more positive mindset than, than I've kind of forced upon you. Um, what can schools do, do you think, to make sure or to do the best as they can to make sure that the ECF is better, works better next year? Kieran and I spoke to Lloyd and Neil just before we came on and they um, had some suggestions for this. They, they talked about making sure that that protected time is factored into your timetable prior to the year starting and that you safeguard it properly throughout the year. You protect those weekly meetings between mentors and ECTs um, because by having it planned and protected, it makes it far, far easier for everyone. Um, Lloyd also talked about not underestimating the workload on your mentor. It's very easy to think that they're experienced teachers so they can handle it, but it was new to them as well. Um, so you need to protect the time they get out as much as you do the ECTs time. And uh, Lloyd also suggested a, a, what I think is a, a killer idea. He said to try and build the content of the ECF into your teaching and learn, learning policy because they may be at odds with one another. I think that's a great idea because, as we said already, that sort of codified knowledge on in the ECF is something that every teacher should know. And we talked about how we were jealous we weren't introduced to that knowledge from day one. Um, so making sure all teachers in your school know it, no matter how inexperienced or experienced they may be, is is essential. Both of them suggested that, well, they were saying, obviously in year two of being an ECT, you get 5% out of class. And they were saying that some schools are thinking about com um, combining it so that every other week, the ECT just gets 10% out because then they can get much more done than they can in 5%. Generally, I would say, how are you cutting workload for ECTs and mentors? You know that they've got a busy workload, so what are you doing to cut it? I mean, I saw on Twitter that some one ECT has been made a member of SLT. I mean, it beggars belief. I also had two um, ECTs in my cohort who were subject leads. They were leading a subject from day one in September of their first year of teaching. That's just, well, I won't, I won't say what I truly believe that is, but please avoid adding extraneous workload for ECTs because it, it is difficult to manage that workload when you're new to profession i think it's been a while for us all now but you, you forget how difficult it really is when you when you start out in terms of mentoring so while the ecf is in its sort of nascent stages as is this whole new approach to mentoring i'd probably recommend using experienced mentors who if possible aren't class-based um because i think a lot of mentors who were class-based found it a bit of a, a shock when it came to workload however that being said it is very good experience for someone who has never mentored before sort of lastly from me the inflexibility thing so i'm just thinking about the mentors i had in my school they were coming to me and saying look i've got this week i've got to give them a target next week i've got to give them a different target next week a different target and i just told them to use your professional judgment and, and allow them to follow the same target for a while every ect or nqt i've ever worked with has always struggled with modeling modeling so like don't say to them right today's target we're going to do modeling and do it for a week because that's something that takes a long time to nail it takes years to, to really, truly nail it. So give those targets for a while. Make them three weeks long, four weeks long. You don't have to be inflexible and stick to this sort of rigid program or booklet just because that's what you've been told. 
Um, and, and that's what the schools minister said. They want mentors to use um, their professional judgment and be more flexible in how they approach the programme next year. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you mentioned there earlier about, you know, all teachers need this. They're one of the best things I've seen this summer is the, I don't know, the mapping that Emma Turner has done with walkthroughs in the early career framework. So essentially, you can go through all three volumes of walkthroughs. And I think Oliver Caviglioli said, if you have the membership, with a lot of people who are using walkthroughs do, once you click on one of those hexagons, I think they were hexagons, you will get all the information as the mentor that you need for that particular um, sort of point. You know, and so first thing I did was I shared it with my wife and said, because she has access, and I said, yeah, you know, this is going to make your life a whole lot more streamlined. So I think, you know, hats off for to Emma for taking the time to do that for us. I've, I've got three things that I would I would sort of use last year to inform this year. You know, I might even, with the idea of, of training mentors, like you say, Elliot, I might almost have a three-year view to this. Okay, we'll see how this goes. But I know that by the time we hit like 2024 or 2025, that's when we're going to be fully operational on this, you know, where we can guarantee the quality of our delivery of this, you know. But then, but obviously I've got the, a lot more capacity to think like that. But I know my, my head teacher friends and colleagues, you know, maybe have a bit more pressure on their shoulders. But the things I would do is I would choose your provider. You know, I know it, it sometimes feels like you have to go with the provider of your local authority or, you know, your trust. But if you know that there's something, you know, there's there are di distinct differences in the quality of the delivery as from what I've been, you know, like I said, anecdotally, but there are differences between how this has been delivered across the different providers. If you were dissatisfied this year, I would find a way to find your provider, you know, that, that you want and that you have heard they do a really good job. So I would I'd move head and earth to make sure you had the right provider because you want to guarantee that um, that sort of high quality of the, the sort of centralized um, training. I would train coaches. I would, you know, give them extended opportunities like the MPQs. I don't know if there are any MPQs that that relate directly to this, but something like my wife's mentor, um, apprenticeship, where she spends 18 months studying, doing, and then almost has this sort of really robust picture of what instructional coaching is at the end of it. I think I would be looking for those opportunities as much as possible. And again, with really high quality providers, if possible. And then I would review constantly, you know, if things don't go well in September, that doesn't mean I have to do the exact same thing in October, November. I can I think, okay, let's, let's refine this model until it works, you know, because I'm sure that, you know, you mentioned Lloyd Neal, you know, I know they're both working to 11 o'clock most nights because of the sort of the work they have to do on a, on a wider scale. But I know that a large part of their time is spent thinking about how things have gone well and how we can make them better. And, you know, operationally speaking, you know, I think it was a, a bit of a learning curve for both of them when they took on the, the role of deputy head teacher. And, and I know they won't mind me saying that because they've come out the other end, you know, much stronger and with a much greater awareness. And I think where you have that opportunity, you use your awareness to say, OK, this might not be working. Let's try something slightly different. You know, I'm not saying throw the baby out of the bathwater, but constantly review, constantly re refine until 2024 25 when you have this perfect model and you're happy with that anybody who comes to your school will be given the opportunity to become a really effective teacher one of the things that's really stood out to me as we've been talking about this is when i imagine these questions i think about faceless 
sort of entities you know i'm not thinking about an individual person i'm but when I need, as I've heard some of your sort of qualifying comments and you're and sort of we've been pushing back and forward on different things, even where things haven't gone well, there will be people who have busted a gut to try and make sure that they did go well in the first place. You know, so I think it's it's important that I sort of outline that I appreciate that. And I know that, that we all appreciate that. Um, and I hope that things will get better um, as we go forward. You know, that, you know, this isn't necessarily a critique of, of the efforts of individuals, but perhaps a necessary critique of how the year went in general, you know, like you say, being able to take feedback. Um, but I'm not thinking of any one individual when I think of this. I'm just thinking of the big picture and conversations that I've had with on multiple different platforms. I think at the heart of this, or a lot of it, if we're being as positive as we can be, is that the fact that this whole thing was first year, first attempt, and at the very center of how we can make sure we do this better, not just like on an individual school level, but thinking about the last question on a national level, et cetera. It's kind of making sure that we're open to feedback as well. There are bound to be mentors out there. And you mentioned about different programs, but there are also bound to be mentors out there that took um, what was what was provided to them and did a really excellent job with it. And one of the things we need to do is find out, okay, so how did you do that? And then see as many of those as possible, find the commonalities between them and say, okay, these are the boundaries within which a mentor can be flexible. Because I guess at the moment, it's hard to know as a mentor, how much flex is there? How much room is there to, you know, to make this fit to the to the context in which I teach and to the um, mentees that I'm working with? So, yeah, I think there's a lot to be hopeful about and a lot of reasons to think that with the experience of the previous year, that things will be better in future. This isn't the first time we've discussed the early career framework. I reckon we should come back this time next year to see what has happened in the in the next 12 months. You know, fingers crossed that we take a step forward because I do think it can support teachers in becoming the teachers they want to become and that we know that our, our children deserve. So yes, I'm, I'm looking forward to that chat. Also, I have to do is say thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much, Elliot. Thank you for having me. Thank you for hosting the show this evening, Christopher. My pleasure. And everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening. Too much politics or do we find a, a balance? <laughs>